Breaking news, Donald Trump's lawyer must testify in the classified documents case. The lead starts right now. Moments ago, a federal court ruled that Donald Trump's defense lawyer has to be called back to answer more questions and turn over more documents as part of the criminal investigation into whether Trump mishandled classified documents. What does this mean for the case? That's next. Plus, a series of Russian strikes targeting the Ukrainian town of Zaporizhia. Children among the victims. Why this town? And why now? CNN is live in the residential area just hit. And an all-out search this hour for a high school student accused of shooting two staff members at his school. How a pat-down on the student led to shots being fired. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. All that news, and we're going to start with our money lead, the economic decision today that could affect every single American. Right now, the Dow is closing more than 500 points down after the Federal Reserve announced its ninth consecutive interest rate hike, this time raising rates by a quarter point. The goal of this historic rate hiking campaign by the Fed, they say, is to reduce inflation and to avoid a recession. But the Fed also acknowledged This rate hike could put more than a million Americans out of work by the end of this year. And raising interest rates, we should note, has also been a factor in the current banking crisis, lowering the value of Treasury bonds, setting off a domino effect of banking problems. Today's move by the Fed means Americans will have to pay more for for houses, for cars, for anything you charge on your credit card. CNN's Matt Egan is at the Federal Reserve for us. And Matt, Walk us through what the Fed's decision will mean for the economy and for consumers. Well, Jake, uh, today the Federal Reserve made clear that in their eyes, public enemy number one remains inflation. That's why they went ahead and raised interest rates for the ninth meeting in a row, lifting benchmark rates to the highest level since 2007. Now, this is aimed at trying to cool off the cost of living that so many Americans are dealing with. But uh, this was no easy decision. A lot of experts wanted the Fed to pause here because these rate hikes uh, have contributed to the pressure in the banking system, to these bank failures. Uh, And Powell did say that they considered a pause, but they went ahead and raised interest rates because inflation still remains way too high. So what does this mean for regular Americans? Well, hopefully it means inflation continues to cool off, but we know it does mean that borrowing costs are going to remain high. You know, credit card rates, have never been higher. Uh, Car loans are expensive. And mortgage rates, they're near the highest level in 20 years. Let me show you exactly what the impact on mortgage rates is. Just because mortgage rates have spiked, monthly payments on a home that is $500,000, those monthly payments are $600 higher than they were a year ago. And that money is not going to get you another bedroom or a bigger yard. That money is all going to the bank because of the Fed's warm inflation. All right, Matt Egan, thanks so much. We also have some breaking news in our politics lead. Donald Trump's defense attorney has been ordered to testify again and turn over documents as part of the investigation into whether Trump mishandled classified documents. CNN's Sarah Murray joins me now live. Sarah, when will this testimony happen and what all does it include? 
Well, Jake, a federal appeals court is saying that attorney Evan Corcoran is going to have to provide additional testimony to a grand jury, as well as hand over documents, which my colleague Caitlin Collins and I are learning includes handwritten notes and includes transcriptions of verbal notes. He's currently scheduled to return to the grand jury on Friday. Now, this all came about Evan Corcoran had previously appeared before a grand jury, but he declined to answer some questions citing attorney client privilege. Prosecutors went before a judge and essentially said, we have evidence that we believe that Donald Trump may have used his attorney to try to commit a crime. The judge said, there is essentially a preponderance of evidence here. There is some preliminary evidence that indicates Donald Trump may have committed a crime. Enough evidence that I'm going to allow you to pierce this attorney-client privilege to try to force Evan Corcoran to testify. What we are learning today is the appeals court uphold that lower court's ruling, Jake. All right, Sarah Murray, thank you so much. In another Trump investigation, the New York grand jury that's been hearing information in the Trump case about Stormy Daniels will not meet today, leaving the former president and the public waiting to see if he will ultimately be indicted in that hush money case. As CNN's Paula Reed reports, Trump's team is waiting for the news. Mr. President! As the legal drama surrounding former President Trump reaches a fever pitch, the waiting game continues in New York for a possible indictment. The Manhattan grand jury investigating a hush money scheme is not expected to reconvene until at least tomorrow, after they didn't meet today, as was expected. But preparations continue for any possible protests. There's a lot of speculation. Uh, The NYPD, they have deployment plans under all circumstances. Sources tell CNN that behind the scenes, the district attorney is taking a moment to regroup. One source telling CNN that the DA's office has suggested to an attorney for at least one witness that they might need to provide additional testimony. And as the investigation nears its final stages, prosecutors are considering the historic nature of indicting a former president, an unprecedented move in U.S. history. Sources also tell CNN Trump has celebrated a potential indictment as a boost for his 2024 White House campaign, and also complained about how unfair it would be. Trump has long denied any role in payments to silence a porn star about an alleged affair, which he denies. Did you know about the $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels? No, no. If they want to go after Donald Trump and they have solid evidence, so be it. But Michael Cohn is far from solid evidence. Attorney Robert Costello attacking the credibility of Michael Cohen, a key witness for the prosecution whom Costello advised in the past. If in fact that I waived attorney-client privilege, I'd like to know when, how, where. I don't recall waiving anything. Well, the grand jury did not meet here at court today. They have traditionally heard evidence on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Though at this point, Jake, it's unclear if they will meet again tomorrow. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Uh, Joining us now to discuss is CNN senior legal analyst, former federal prosecutor, Ellie Honig. Uh, A lot of uh, of trials uh, going on with Donald Trump. We're not even talking about all of them. Um, But let's start with the breaking news. The appeals court having to do with the Jack Jack Smith general counsel investigation into whether Trump violated the law having to do with classified documents. The appeals court for that case says Trump's attorney has to testify before a grand jury. What does this tell us uh, about the case? Well, Jake, this tells us that the Justice Department believes and was able to prove to the satisfaction of a federal judge 
that Donald Trump committed a crime. And the crime here appears to be obstruction. The theory is that Donald Trump lied to the FBI through his lawyers about those classified documents. It is important to keep in mind the burden of proof here is lower than it would be at trial. Of course, at trial, you'd have to prove the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. But DOJ here did make a substantial showing to the judge, and they had to do that using specific evidence. It's not enough in a situation like this for prosecutors to just say, judge, take our word for it. You have to show specific proof. What do you make of how quickly this happened? It's remarkable how quickly this happened. And, you know, Donald Trump has a long history of taking this kind of dispute into the courts and dragging it out for months or even years. Credit is due to the court here. People sometimes say, well, these things take time. They only take as long as the judges want them to take. I give credit to the district judge here. She ruled on Friday. Here we are on Wednesday, and the Court of Appeals has already done its job. It's possible to move these things quickly. Okay, so that is, just trying to help people at home keep this all straight, (laughs) That is the classified documents investigation. Now, there is the hush money case. That's the New York or rather the Manhattan district attorney. The grand jury did not meet today as expected in your experience. And obviously this is speculation, but what could be going on behind the scenes? So I can see a couple possible explanations here, Jake. First of all, it could be that the DA wants to think about this some more. This is a momentous decision. It might be one that's worth taking a night's sleep on. The other possibilities, it could be there's a witness that the DA wants to call that wasn't available today. And the last thing is, if the DA already has an understanding in place, either with Donald Trump's team or with the security forces that are going to be needed down by the courthouse, that the actual surrender will happen on a certain day, I would want to absolutely minimize the time lag between an indictment and that day because only bad things can happen. So they may want to get that indictment as close as possible to the day of the actual surrender. Right. And it's not just, you know, pro-Trump forces. It's also anti-Trump forces. They have to worry about everything. Uh, Sources are telling CNN that as this investigation, the hush money investigation wraps up, prosecutors are are considering this historic nation of prosecuting a former president. As you just noted, it is a big decision. It would be unprecedented. You know the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, who previously decided not to do this. Um, What do you make of, of how he's handling this all? Well, Jake, I think we have to say the disclaimer that we don't know exactly what the charges are going to be. I do know Alvin Bragg. I have a lot of faith in him as a prosecutor. That said, I do question the notion of bringing a historic first ever indictment of a former president and frankly, seeking to lock that person up based on the charges as we understand them now, based on a bookkeeping failure relating to a six and a half year old payment of hush money. I think people will question whether that's worthy of such a momentous decision, especially given the possibility that there are much more substantial charges ahead relating to January 6th. Right. And, and now that we've heard this breaking news in the documents case, which do you think is a bigger legal issue for Donald Trump, uh, Stormy Daniels uh, or the classified documents? Potentially, again, no, chi- no charges have been filed in either one, but, yeah. but potentially, which one do you think is um, a, 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 a a bigger, a bigger hassle for Donald Trump, I guess. Yeah. If I was Donald Trump's lawyer, I would be worried about the, the three big cases really in this order. I think the January 6th case is the most serious and the biggest threat. That includes Fulton County, Georgia and DOJ. And I think the Mar-a-Lago classified documents would be in second place. And I think in a distant third would be the bookkeeping around the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels. But isn't you say the January 6th is, is potentially the biggest one. Aren't those two different cases, though? You have the Fulton yes. County DA 
They're looking into whether or not Donald Trump broke the law trying to overturn the results of the election just in Georgia. We don't even know what the general counsel, Jack Smith, is, is, is looking into when it comes to January 6th, necessarily. Exactly. Those are two different cases. I think Fonnie Willis has made quite clear that she's likely to indict. And Jack Smith is making progress. We know, for example, that he subpoenaed Mike Pence the other day. So there's real action, both federally with DOJ and at the state level. I think both of them are very serious threats. All right, Ellie Honig, thank you so much, as always. Coming up, CNN goes live to the Ukrainian town of Zaporizhia just hours after a series of Russian strikes hit a residential area, hitting civilians, including children. And the new homicide case that seems to be linked to disgraced South Carolina attorney Alec Murdoch. This one is connected to a classmate of his surviving son, Buster Murdoch. Plus, the spying controversy uniting the House Intelligence Committee, the top Republican and the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee are going to join me in just a moment. Topping our world lead, you are right now looking at a destroyed apartment building in Zaporizhia. That's a city of thousands in southeastern Ukraine. It was indiscriminately bombarded by... Russian missiles earlier today in this residential part of Ukraine with no military targets nearby, according to a top government official in Zaporizhia. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky called the strike that killed one and injured more than 30, including children, quote, bestial savagery. CNN's Ivan Watson is live for us on the scene in Zaporizhia. Uh, Ivan, how are residents dealing with the aftermath of this brutal attack? Yeah, they're they're just getting on. And and look, it's nighttime. It's after 10 p.m. here. But even even with the low light, you can see just the crater in the side of these two nine story apartment buildings where Ukrainian authorities say uh, a Russian rocket slammed into it at around 11 o'clock this morning. Uh, You can just see the devastation here. And to understand a little bit better about what happened, uh, we have a survivor, uh, Kirila Chorny. Welcome, uh, is a 20-year-old university student. Thank you for coming to speak with us. Um, and you were home in your apartment building when this happened, right? What did you hear? What did you think? Well, I heard an explosion and I saw a fire, actually. And, uh, well, as you can see, a rocket landed somewhere, somewhere here. But yeah. uh, the ex- explosion wave and the fire still uh, got there. I mean, you were... 10, 15 meters away from a missile strike. Well, yeah, and actually in my, uh, in my parents' room. Uh, Your dad was right there. Yeah, yeah, my dad was right there, and actually he was near window, but uh, he was like a little you... bit uh, to his desk, and uh, he survived, and if he was a little bit right, he would be dead. So how are you feeling tonight? Are you going to stay here in your home tonight? Uh, yeah, of course, I will say it's my home. It's my homeland. Uh, I have nowhere to go. Actually, uh, mayor uh, gave us uh, a hotel or something like this, so we can basically move there. But I don't want to leave my home and my house. I saw inside your apartment all the windows are blown out. You're just less than a stone's throw away from where a deadly rocket hit the side of your own building. Will you be able to sleep tonight? Are your parents, uh, how, what emotional state are they in right now? Are you guys afraid? Are you angry? How are you feeling? We are mostly angry. We are not afraid. Why would we be afraid? It's our home. And Russia is invading us, not we invade Russia. I will sleep uh, at my bed. My parents will sleep uh, at their beds. 
it will be a little bit cold because we don't have windows, but still we we are not going anywhere. All right, Kirilla, thank you very much for, for sharing that with me. Now, Jake, just so you and the viewers know, Zaporizhia is about a half hour's drive from the front lines. This is not the first time that Russian missiles and rockets have hit apartment buildings in this town. There are other people were killed earlier this month by a simil similar strike. And it just leaves you with this question. What possible military strategic reason would there be for firing a long-range deadly projectile with this kind of explosive strength at residential buildings? That's a question that I'm left with, unless they were aiming in some other direction and the aim was terribly wrong. And this is a pattern that Ukrainians have been dealing with in different cities and towns across this country for months. It's incredible to, to hear the will of this 20-year-old young man in Ukraine and, and his resilience in the face of this. Ivan Watson with some very important uh, journalism from Zaporizhia. Thank you so much. Earlier today, Russian officials issued a warning for the United States, stop, quote, testing our patients, unquote, by flying U.S. drones over the Black Sea's international waters. This after last week's incident where two Russian fighter jets harassed an unmanned U.S. Reaper drone and forced the U.S. Air Force to crash land the drone in the Black Sea. CNN's Orrin Lieberman is at the Pentagon for us. Orrin, are U.S. drones being more or less aggressive now in the Black Sea and that general area? Well, Jake, from Russia's perspective, all of this is aggressive. They view much of the Black Sea, including international waters and international airspace, as essentially theirs and try to make some claim that they can use it exclusively, whether that's in the eastern parts near the Russian city of Sochi or near occupied Crimea. The U.S. has made it clear they don't recognize that, and they will and have continued to fly drones over the Black Sea, both MQ-9 Reaper drones and RQ-4 Global Hawks, so two different types of drones operating in different areas. But after that encounter between the two Russian jets and the U.S. Reaper drone that downed the drone, the U.S. did carry out an assessment, essentially a look at all the parameters around these missions to make sure that it's worth it, to make sure the intelligence gathered is worth the risks of confrontation with the Russians. We have learned from two U.S. officials familiar with the matter. The U.S. has moved some of its drone operations over the Black Sea a little farther south, so operating closer to Turkey there, to make sure there isn't a risk of confrontation, especially at the heightened tensions now. But one of the officials also said, look, there's already an appetite to get back to where the U.S. was operating, closer to Crimea. There's more intelligence to gather there. It's also, frankly, a statement to the Russians that the U.S. will continue to operate in international airspace uh, above the Black Sea and where else international law allows. So those sorts of discussions and deliberations are going on right now. Again, Jake, we have seen the U.S. continue to operate drones after the encounter between the Russian jets and the drones. But the U.S., as it has been pretty much since the very beginning, being very careful in how it operates with Russia, trying to avoid any unintentional conflict that leads to perhaps an unintended escalation. All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. Joining us now in a rare joint interview, uh, the chairman, the top Republican, and the uh, ranking member, the top Democrat on the House Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, Chairman Mike Turner of Ohio and ranking member Jim Himes of, of Connecticut. Uh, thanks to both of you for being here. I appreciate it. So you've been uh, vocal about the U.S. needing to maintain a presence in the Black Sea uh, it sounds as though, from Warren's reporting, that the U.S. has decided to to back off a little. 
Uh, do you agree with that decision? No, and I hope it's certainly it's temporary. The, the key is, is that we have to gain intelligence from the area to be able to give the information to the Ukrainians so they can defend themselves, but also to get an understanding of what Russia is doing in the area. Uh, Crimea is an area where they're doing uh, a massive buildup, and it's where they're operating the war. Obviously, that's an area where we need to gain intelligence. We're operating in international waters. That means we're certainly allowed to do so. So, um, Ranking Member Himes, last fall you went to Ukraine uh, uh, with the, the chairman here, and you spent 13 hours on a train together. Uh, you told the Washington Examiner that was, um, you know, uh, a, a good time, a, a bonding experience for the two of you. Um, needless to say, the, the previous chair and ranking member, Nunes and Schiff, uh, those were uh, contentious uh, years. How are you able to block out the noise and do your work in a, in a bipartisan way? How have you been able to achieve that? Sure. And, and um, it was, you know, uh, we're, we're people. And so being able to spend time together and establish a personal relationship is pretty critical. 13 hours on a train. 13 I would hours think you're either going to like each yeah. other or hate that's, each other uh, by the end of that. That's, that's not the easiest train ride in the world either. So um, but but look, I think we both recognize um, that uh, there's a lot at stake here in having a bipartisan national security focus committee. And what I mean by that is that the American public needs to see that we are open to each other's point of view and that when we disagree, we do it constructively. And the reason that's important is because whether it's the origins of the coronavirus or whether we should send more weapons to Ukraine or whether we should reauthorize surveillance technologies, they need to think of us as people who put the national security first and our partisan interests second. And the chairman, Mike, has been really uh, dedicated to that. And, uh, you know, we're going to make sure that that happens because there's just too much at stake for people to think that we're acting party first. Yeah, it's and the Senate has been a pretty good model of that, uh, Burr and Warner and now Warner and Rubio. It's good to see it back at the House. Is there a specific intelligence-related policy that you two do not see eye to eye on? Well, I'm sure there's going to be several that we don't see eye to eye on. But like the American public, you know, 95, 99% of all the national security issues really are, are bipartisan. And the people who work on these issues... Whether you're in, you know, the Office of National, of Director of National Intelligence, whether you're working for the NSA, whether you're working for the CIA, you know, there are Republicans and Democrats there too, and they're every day working on the, those issues. So we're honoring them when we work together on them. Also, uh, we've made our commitment to that. Um, uh, the Speaker and uh, you know, Hakeem Jeffries made a commitment. They came before us and they said, "Look, we want this committee to work on a bipartisan basis. So it's not just us; it's the leadership of the House and all the members of the committee that have jointly made this commitment. We're going to work on a bipartisan basis." So there's a, a new bipartisan working group um, that the House Intelligence Committee announced today, focused on the reauthorization of this key section of FISA. That's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which has been controversial in the last few years, whether it has to do with um, this decision to spy on Carter Page and actions by the FBI, et cetera. It allows the intelligence community to gather a call and text data of foreign targets. Now, the member who's going to lead this group is Republican Congressman Darren LaHood of Illinois. He says he's been a victim of FISA's overreach, in his view, and, and surveillance on Americans. Um, do you, does the committee have concrete evidence that FISA has been a force for good uh, and that it should continue even though there have obviously been mistakes and possibly abuses. Yeah, well, I mean, l- let me be super clear on this point. Uh, not only should it continue, it must continue. 702, FISA 702 collection, 
that's pointed at non-U.S. citizens abroad. And whether it's China or Russia or Iran or anti-terrorism, if that gets turned off, this country is a much less safe country. It is also true that there have been abuses and there has been incompetence in the use of that program, including what Mr. LaHood uh, alleged. So our job is, and I think this is really clear, is to figure out, first of all, how we educate all the other members on what is fairly complicated legal and technical stuff, and then how we put in place the reforms to make sure uh, that those abuses and those incompetent uses that have in fact happened over time, that we put a stop to those things. And that's, that's a great example of where we're going to need bipartisan cooperation, because the truth is there are people on both sides of the aisle who are deeply skeptical of this program. So we've got to convince them with reforms that this program needs to be reauthorized. Yeah, and even Congressman LaHood, uh, who says he was a, a victim of its abuses, he wants to continue. Um, so former CIA analyst Patrick Eddington uh, wrote an opinion article in The Hill arguing that FISA should be completely scrapped. I know you disagree. I want to give you a chance to respond. He writes, those who support renewal of Section 702 claim the program is invaluable. Yet that claim has never been validated by Congress's watchdog, the Government Accountability Office. And prior government claims about the effectiveness of other must-have surveillance programs have been exposed as false. You disagree? Absolutely. I mean, first off, the, the, the world is, is not getting more safe. It's getting less safe. And our adversaries are getting more aggressive. Our tools, our ability uh, to be able to spy, to be able to gather intelligence, to be able to understand how our adversaries intend to do both our allies and ourselves harm is, is even more critical now than it's ever been. Um, there are abuses. We need to fix them. That's why we put this working group together. We put on notice the intelligence community that uh, FISA, in order to be uh, renewed and, and must be reformed. And we're going to begin working on that on a bipartisan basis. There are solutions that can protect Americans at the same time letting us target our adversaries. Um, before you go, I just want to get your quick ref- uh, reflections on this uh, burgeoning partnership between Chinese leader Xi Jinping and Russian leader uh, Vladimir Putin. How worried should the American people be? Well, it's obviously an alliance of convenience. The Chinese are getting um, an awful lot of very cheap energy from the Russians. The Russians are obviously getting uh, 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 equipment. And I think what they're not getting in any appreciable amounts, of course, is weapons. And I think that's where we need to be focused right now. It was interesting when they came out of their meeting uh, in Moscow that there was no announcement about weapons. And that's, that's, I think, where we really would sit up and take notice. Look, we would love the Chinese to be on the right side of history with respect to this murderous war that Putin is, ra- is raging. But without weapons, you know, the Russians can't win this war. So for us, that's a red line. I think the Chinese are probably smart enough to know that the economic sanctions that they would suffer, uh, frankly, the judgment of history that they would suffer if they were to militarily back the Russians would be a cost that would be a little high for them to bear. Chairman Turner, we've got to go. Well, go ahead. Make your last point. The most important thing that happened when he left that meeting that President Xi said, we're going to make change that hasn't happened in 100 years. He is talking about authoritarian regimes winning over democracy, and we have to make certain that that does not happen. Well, okay. Chairman uh, Turner and uh, Ranking Member Himes, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Let's do this every week. It's it's, (laughs) it's good. Every week we'll do this. Uh, Coming up next, the new promise for Mexico as its president tries to combat the fentanyl crisis. I'm going to talk to one of the U.S. lawmakers who went to Mexico to help secure that promise. Is it worth anything? That's next. In our world lead, a group of Republican and Democratic U.S. lawmakers just got back from Mexico with a series of promises from the Mexican president. At the top of the list, more border security on Mexico's size and efforts to stop the cartels from further production of fentanyl. 
Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador specifically promised that he would ask the Chinese government for help in that, too. Here's why. According to DEA in the United States, China is the primary source of fentanyl and chemicals that make fentanyl. The substances are often sent to Mexico through international mail and then smuggled into the U.S., more often than not, according to the DEA, by U.S. citizens going through legitimate ports of entry. Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas was among 12 Republicans and uh, some Democrats as well. On that trip, he joins us now. Congressman, thanks for joining us. So more than 800 miles of your district border Mexico. Did you take the Mexican president at his word when he told you that he'd press the Chinese government for help with this horrific fentanyl crisis that has come into the United States from Mexico? Uh, thank you for having me, Jake. You know, and I want to thank Senator Cornyn for putting this delegation together. It was six Republicans, five Democrats, and an independent. That doesn't happen. And we traveled to Mexico City. Uh, I, I've visited with many different heads of state before. Prime Minister Modi of India, former President Moon of South Korea, and the list goes on and on. Uh, the, the visit with President uh, Lopez Obrador, it lasted four hours, and it was a dialogue. It wasn't a one-way conversation. I thought that in itself was very productive. Now, there was a lot of takeaways from it. One of them was he committed to working with the Chinese government uh, to prevent some of the raw materials from coming in. We're going to hold him accountable to that. But there was uh, discussions on, on immigration, border security, uh, water. We even discussed water. Water is very critical in my district along the border. So I think it was a good first step. But now the real the real work happens is how do we follow up from this visit? So the Mexican president uh, also told you that he's moving a headquarters for customs officials from Mexico City to a town closer to the border. He also says he's putting more money into drug searches at the border. Are these promises that we've heard before from previous Mexican administrations? You know, there is a lot of talk, and talk is cheap. You know, uh, one of the things that, that I pushed back at the very beginning of, of uh, the dialogue was uh, the Mexican government was talking about how safe the border is and how orderly things are. And I was clear to point out just last week in Ozona, Texas, Maria and Emilia, uh, Emilia uh, Tambunga uh, died. This is a grandmother and her granddaughter. Imagine you're just driving down the road and they got hit by a, a high-speed uh, 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 smuggler that was smuggling illegal aliens. Some migrants died in this. And I go, things are not orderly. People are dying. Americans are dying. I also mentioned just last week at the uh, Pasa del Norte Bridge in El Paso County, there were uh, almost a thousand Venezuelans that tried to rush the border. And so that, that's usually in these high level meetings, it's pleasantries. No, you're great. No, you're great. This was more of a dialogue. Good, the good, and the good, the bad and the ugly parts of it. I think that's an important thing for us to do. It may be that um, the public thinks that the fentanyl crisis uh, in the United States, that most of the fentanyl um, maybe is smuggled secretly by undocumented immigrants crossing the Rio Grande. But as you and I have discussed before, that's not actually the case. Most of the fentanyl is smuggled in by American citizens crossing legally at legal ports of entry. So the Department of Homeland Security has its own new plan to, to help stop fentanyl trafficking. It's called Operation Blue Lotus, uses uh, canine dogs and scanning technology to look for drugs at entry ports. Do you think this is going to work? You know, I, I'm not too sure. I mean, we've tried some of these things before, the, but the, the good thing is we're now trying new things. And I think it's important that we throw everything, including the kitchen sink, 
at, at the problem. I, I will say this isn't just an administration problem. The House of Representatives has an opportunity to lead. And one of the things that I'm concerned about is that we're going to just have these bills that don't go anywhere. And I'll give you an example. In the Homeland Security uh, Committee, there is a, a border security package right now. Right now, that bill has a long way to go before it gets my support. And I have no interest in just a messaging bill. This has to be real, tangible things because, once again, the people in my district are at the forefront of this. This is important where House, the House of Representatives, needs to lead. Well, and also, and you and I have talked about this before, regardless of uh, who controls the House, you have a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president. So whatever the House passes, if you want it to become law, it has to be something that Democrats are willing to sign on to, too, which undermines any messaging bill in that way. No, you're exactly right. That's what, another thing that was so powerful about this trip. I mean, you, you essentially had six Republicans and, and six Demo uh, five Democrats and an independent, both, that, both the House and the Senate come together. Jake, that doesn't happen. And we traveled to Mexico City. It was a very real, tangible thing. And once again, look, it, it starts in the House. The power of the purse is in the House. I sit on the Appropriations Committee. But it also starts with the bills that we pass. These anti-immigrant, unchristian bills, I have no interest in allowing that to get passed over to the Senate and, and, and have them go nowhere with it. These have to be real, tangible things that ultimately help it. And right now, what I'm seeing in the Homeland Security Committee is this bill doesn't go far enough to secure our border. All right, Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas, thank you so much. Always appreciate it. Coming up next, the urgent search right now for a student accused of shooting two faculty members at a Denver high school earlier today and the pat-down that might have prompted the incident. Stay with us. Turning to our national lead, the latest in the nation's long and shamefully growing list of school shootings. This time it happened in Denver, Colorado's East High School. Two people have been wounded. One critically, we're told, the shooter described as a student who was on what's called in that school a safety plan. That student got away. The safety plan required him to be searched every morning that he came into school. CNN law enforcement correspondent Whitney Wild is monitoring the situation. Whitney, what are authorities saying? Well, they're saying, as you point out, every day the student had to be searched. He had never produced a weapon before, but today it was different. Today, around 9.50 Mountain Time, the student produced a firearm and shot two members of the faculty at East High School. This search happens at the front of the school. It's away from other students, and it's an administrative area. Uh, that was Denver Public Schools' plan to try to mitigate any threat that they thought this student represented. However, clearly today, those mitigation efforts were not enough. Now there is a rapid manhunt underway to try to find this suspect. The suspect is being identified uh, as 17-year-old Austin Lyle. Uh, they say that he's a black male. He's 5'5". He's 150 pounds. Uh, he was last seen wearing a green hoodie. And according to police, he's associated with a 2005 red Volvo uh, with a Colorado plate BSCW10. Earlier today, Jake, police were reluctant to release this uh, student's age, his name, uh, because he's a juvenile. But at this point, now they think that he represents such a significant risk that they are willing to put his name and his photo out there. When this shooting happened, Jake, again, this was two members of the faculty. Uh, he, uh, again, 
produced a firearm, sh- uh, produced a handgun, shot these two members of the faculty, and then fled on foot. He has not been apprehended. The weapon was not apprehended. Again, this is these are all the reasons that Denver police believe he still represents such a significant risk. What I can tell you is that the condition of the faculty, uh, one member of the faculty is in serious condition. That was the latest update we got, that that faculty member was alert enough to give a description of the event. The other faculty member earlier today underwent surgery, was in critical condition. We have not yet received a new update on that member's condition. However, Jake, what is so notable here is it just so happens, just through pure luck, that paramedics were on scene treating another student for another completely unrelated incident. And so they were able to rush over to these two faculty members who were shot and administer what we hope are life-saving measures. Uh, and so uh, hopefully the, hopefully this other faculty member survives. But truly good luck uh, that those paramedics were on scene, Jake. Yeah. Whitney Wilde, thank you so much. Appreciate that reporting. Um, coming up next, the new homicide investigation opened as authorities were digging into the Murdoch murders in South Carolina. CNN is laying out the circumstances coming to light now. Stay with us. In our national lead, for those who thought the Murdoch drama was over, not so fast. South Carolina police are investigating the 2015 death of Stephen Smith as a homicide. Smith was a classmate of Buster Murdoch, the surviving son of convicted murderer Alec Murdoch. Investigators now say there's no indication that Smith's death was caused by a hit and run, as originally reported by a medical examiner. The family attorney raised concerns that Smith might have been targeted because he was gay. And as CNN's Diane Gallagher reports for us now, the initial police case file mentions the Murdoch family dozens of times. The investigation into who killed 19-year-old Stephen Smith is heating up, with state investigators calling his mother's attorneys Tuesday with an update on her son's case. This is not a hit and run, that this is something more and something different, and that SLED is actively investigating this as a homicide. Smith's body was found in the middle of this rural Hampton County, South Carolina road in July 2015. Highway Patrol investigators at the time said there was no evidence he'd been hit by a car. But a pathologist who performed the autopsy said Smith was the victim of a hit and run. The nursing student with dreams of becoming a doctor died from blunt force head trauma. Sandy Smith has said she feared her son was targeted because he was gay. He was an openly gay young man in an area of the state where it's not popular to, do, to be an openly gay man. And it, it probably had to do with one of his relationships, uh, friendships, or something that um, he was involved with. Tuesday brought the first real update in Smith's homicide investigation since June 2021, when state law enforcement, or SLED, investigators announced they were opening a case into his killing, based on information gathered during their investigation of the murders of Paul and Maggie Murdoch. SLED has never revealed what that information was. Verdict guilty. But the trial of Alec Murdoch was discussed on that Tuesday phone call with the SLED chief. He said that now there's been a conviction of Alex Murdoch, he thinks that people are more apt to come forward and discuss what they know about Stephen Smith. The Murdoch name is mentioned dozens of times in the original case, like in this audio interview where the trooper mentions Buster Murdoch. Buster was was on our radar. The Murdochs know that. 
but there has never been any official connection made between the Murdoch family and Stephen Smith's death. This week, in a statement given to CNN, Buster Murdoch said, quote, This has gone on far too long. These baseless rumors of my involvement with Stephen and his death are false. I unequivocally deny any involvement in his death, and my heart goes out to the Smith family. And again, there are no suspects that have ever been named in Stephen Smith's killing. Uh, Sled Chief Mark Keel said today they were assigning additional state agents to the region in hopes, Jake, that perhaps people would feel more comfortable and be able to speak freely now more than they did, of course, in 2015 or even 2021. All right, Diane Gallagher, thank you so much. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts will be here. She's repeatedly said that Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell needs to step down. What does she think of Powell's decision today to raise interest rates again in the wake of the banking turmoil? All that and more next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates once again, and it's a decision that could impact every single American and their wallet. Senator Elizabeth Warren, who says Jerome Powell should not be chair of the Fed, joins me live for an exclusive in-studio interview. That's coming up. Plus, approximately 6,000 people die every year waiting for organ transplants in the United States. The proposal aimed at making it easier to get an organ transplant. And leading this hour, a blow for Donald Trump and a major win for prosecutors. An appeals court has ordered one of Trump's defense attorneys has to testify again in the classified documents case. Evan Corcoran is scheduled to testify this Friday before a grand jury. CNN's Sarah Murray joins us now live. Sarah, what kind of information does Corcoran have to to testify about or to turn over? Well, Jake, this is a really significant development because Evan Corcoran, of course, is one of Donald Trump's attorneys. The appeals court is saying he needs to go back before a grand jury, provide additional testimony, and he has to hand over documents, which include things like handwritten notes and transcriptions of verbal calls. Now, this all came to be because he went to a grand jury previously and he declined to answer some of the questions put before him. He cited attorney-client privilege. Prosecutors went to a judge and said, look, we have evidence that the former president, Donald Trump, may have committed a crime essentially using his attorney to do so. They showed surveillance tapes. And by making that argument, they convinced the judge to pierce this attorney-client privilege shield. The appeals court agreed with the lower court judge and said, look, Evan Corcoran, you got to go back and testify. you got to hand over these notes. Sarah, why is Corcoran such an important witness for the prosecution? I mean, when we think back to when Donald Trump got that subpoena, when he had to do this search for documents, Evan Corcoran was the one who was in the middle of that. He was in the middle of doing this search for classified documents. He helped to write the attestation that Christina Bob later signed, telling the Justice Department, we've handed over everything. And we then learned, of course, that wasn't true at all, that there were you know, roughly 100 documents of classified barkings on them still left when the FBI showed up to search Mar-a-Lago. So he is a central witness for prosecutors trying to get to the bottom of what happened and potentially build a case against the former president, Jake. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Turning to our money lead, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by a quarter point today as Fed Chair Jerome Powell tries to fight stubbornly high inflation, which has been hitting Americans' wallets hard for more than a year. But this whole fight against inflation has been complicated by a number of factors, including the instability of the banking system. CNN's Richard Quest joins us now. Richard, walk us through how the Fed's rate hiking campaign will impact the economy and will impact consumers. 
So the Fed has raised rates, but it's done it by the least amount because it wants to show that inflation is still its key target. But it talked a lot about the banking crisis. And Jake, here's where it gets a bit perverse in a sense, because the banking crisis is going to mean banks lend less, tighter credit, harder to borrow. And that will slow the economy and that will bring down inflation. So if you will, the banking crisis is doing the Fed's dirty work for it. The Fed is on guard, though. The Fed says, look, it's all very uncertain, this, and all very murky. If for some reason the banking crisis doesn't slow down the economy, then we stand ready to raise rates even more. Inflation is still the number one enemy for the Fed. All right, Richard Quest in Tokyo for us. Richard, thanks so much. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts joins us now. She's on the Senate Finance Committee and also the Senate Banking uh, Committee. So thank you so much for being here. Good thank to you. see you again. Glad to be here. So you've called for an investigation of the Fed, uh, arguing that Jerome Powell has failed. Now, his defenders say the pandemic was a black swan event that sent the economy into a tailspin. And he has correctly read the labor market's ability to sustain full employment in the face of rate hikes. What do you say to those who argue, who disagree with you and argue Powell since of the, this unprecedented cataclysmic economic event of the pandemic, that he's actually done a decent job. Well, you know, if you want to treat this as a cataclysmic event, which certainly the pandemic was, keep in mind it drove inflation in ways that are different from how we usually have it. So, for example, we have seen supply chain kinks that have driven up prices. Then add to that, we have a war in Ukraine. And then one of the big pieces has been a lot of price gouging. We've seen these giant corporations, particularly in industries that are very concentrated, really pushing their prices up. So there are three things that are helping push prices up. And do you know how many of those three can be affected by raising interest rates? None of them. The whole point is that Powell is using the one tool the Fed has, and that is raise interest rates. But he has said himself in hearings, nope, it won't affect any of those things. But here's what it will affect. When the Fed uses language like we're trying to cool the economy or slow down the economy, the translation behind that is we're trying to increase unemployment. Right. And in fact, the Fed has said this uh, in the last hearing that I had with with, uh, Chair Powell when we had him in front of us in the Finance Committee. I looked at the Fed's own predictions, their report in December, in which they said we want to keep Uh, trying to uh, slow down the economy. And what we're hoping for out of this is that we increase unemployment by 2 million jobs. Now, that's a lot of people for whom that's a lot of hurt. These are people right now who are paying the rent, putting groceries on the table. They're not not hiding this, though. they're, They're saying this. He said it today. I think more than a million jobs to be lost this year because of these rate hikes. That's right. And actually, by the Fed's own prediction, it's more than 2 million. That is their target here. And the point I want to make is that's not going to help us on supply chain kinks, not going to help us on the war in Ukraine. It's not going to help us on these the price gouging from these big corporations. So I think we ought to be not doing the uh, extraordinary, these extreme interest rate hikes. Mm. We've never seen hikes at this rate in the modern economy and bearing down harder on these other costs that are 
these other factors that are driving up. But you costs. think Fed Chair Powell should be doing things about these other things that no, are? No, I think what he should say, right. he should call, for example, for more on price gouging, but back off using his tool and keep trying to say that he's going to keep using it until he puts two million people out of work. So a December Washington Post column said that this is not the Warren presidency, but it's certainly a Warren infused presidency, meaning that the president, President Biden, is taking a lot of your suggestions and trying to enact them into law. Have you ever directly told President Biden that you think he should fire uh, the chair, fire Jerome Powell? And who would you like to see replace him? So I'm not going to talk about private conversations. uh, But what I will say is I've made it very clear as publicly as humanly possible that I didn't think that he should be reconfirmed as president, as chair of the Fed. And I think he's doing a really terrible job. And he's doing a terrible job on both fronts. Remember, there are two, only two jobs for the Federal Reserve chair. One is monetary policy, inflation. I think he's doing a very bad job there, and it's risking pushing our economy into a recession. His other job is regulatory oversight. And he has spent five years weakening regulations over these multi-billion dollar banks. I predicted five years ago the consequence of that kind of weakening would be that we would see these banks load up on risk, build their short-term profits, give themselves ginormous uh, uh, bonuses and big salaries, and then some of those banks will explode. And that is exactly what has happened on Chair Powell's watch. You just mentioned the prospect of a recession. Do you think the United States is headed for a recession? I think that that is where Jerome Powell is trying to drive it. And he's got two different ways you he's doing it. You think he's purposely it. trying to drive it to a recession? Well, what he's trying to do is get two million people laid off. And one of the things that we need to understand, he wants to raise the unemployment rate by more than a point within a single 12-month period. We have done that before in this country. In fact, we have done it 12 times before. And out of all 12 times, how many times has it resulted in a recession? The answer is 12. So that's the direction he's trying to push this. That is a danger to our economy. It's why I said five years ago, I think he's a dangerous man to have in this job. So CNN has exclusively uh, obtained a letter written by you and six other senators after the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. You're calling for the Fed to crack down on these large regional banks, arguing that they cannot be left to supervise themselves. As you know, Powell is not the only banking regulator. Um, It's the OCC, the SEC, FINRA, the the CFPB, which you know a little bit about, the FDIC, Treasury. In short, the Biden administration. Are Are you pointing the finger too much at Powell and not enough at President Biden and all the agencies and departments that he's in charge of? The one who is responsible on safety and soundness. That's the part we want to go here. Is this a financially solvent and stable bank? That's at the Fed Mm -hmm. for all of these $50 billion and above banks. And that's where it is that Jerome Powell has spent years now weakening the regulations. In fact, I had him at a hearing not long ago in which I talked about the fact that he has weakened the regulations over these banks, not once, not twice, but literally dozens of times. And so I said to him, All of the things you've done for these banks, and a lot of it's way down in the weeds. Can you name just one where you kind of tightened the regulations a little bit, where you increased oversight a little bit? And his answer was no. No. 
Um, after the Silicon Valley Bank failure, you sent a letter to the former CEO of that bank arguing mm-hmm. that his lobbying to weaken the rules, I don't know if you mean with Congress, which actually acquiesced yes. in 2018, but also, or also with, with, him, with uh, Fed Chair um, Powell. But, but you said his lobbying is what enabled the collapse. Mm-hmm. And you asked him to submit answers to your questions by March 28th. It is not yet March 28th, I should note. Have you heard back and what are you hoping to No, learn? we have not. But this really is the reminder. This is not a story that just one day fell out of the sky. This is a story that starts back with, you remember, the last crash put Dodd-Frank in place, promised the American people we're going to have tough regulations, and that means we're not going to have any more bank failures. Then these multi-billion dollar banks, including the CEO of uh, this Silicon Valley bank, come in and say, no, no, no. They want to be treated not like the multi-billion dollar banks they are. They said, we're just like those little tiny local community banks that do such a great job of providing local loans and so on. So regulate us very lightly, they said, because they claimed they posed no risk to the economy. Now, Donald Trump then ran for president saying to those banks, multi-billion dollar banks, I will lighten regulations on you. Once he was elected, he put in regulators who believed in deregulation. Then he went to Congress and said to Congress, roll back the part of Dodd-Frank that requires more supervision over these $50 billion right. and, and above And most Republicans banks. went along with it, but All also a bunch of Democrats, mm-hmm. too. Yep. Also a bunch of yep. Democrats, no, too. No, he got help from both parties. And then what happened is that Jerome Powell said, you've opened the door for much more deregulation, massive deregulation. And he said it. He's actually on the record saying this. Because you opened the door, I am now going to go full steam ahead and lighten the regulations. And then his then vice chair, who was Randy Quarles, said that his job was to change the culture at the Fed in order to let these banks do what they wanted to do, to be able to take on risk, run up profits. And I'm going to say he didn't add this part and run the risk of exploding. Do you want other parts of the Biden administration to be more aggressive on these issues, all of the Treasury Department and all of the other agencies and and regulatory departments that that I mentioned? Do do they need to be more aggressive as well? I I think right now this really is at the Fed, and then I want to say the regional Fed, so the whole Fed structure. Uh, The CFPB, for example, they're dealing with consumer contracts, and that's not the heart of what's gone wrong here. FDIC is trying to figure out how to manage uh, the insurance uh, for depositors. And actually, I think this is a place, thanks to the intervention that the Treasury was forced to take weekend before last, I think this is a place now we're going to have to have statutory change. Because, in effect, the Treasury, combined with the Fed, has said we're going to come in and start backstopping all deposits, backstopping the banks, and that means they're providing, in effect, a form of insurance and not charging for it. Hmm. Is there a way? We saw some elements after the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment tra- mm-hmm. tra- travesty, where we saw some elements of the populist right, the J.D. Vances of the world, mm-hmm. joining with some elements of the populist left, the Sherrod Browns of mm-hmm. the world. Is there an area here for the kind of actions you're talking about that conservatives could join with you? I think there is. 
And it's the reminder that there are regulations that are helpful to all of us. And the regulations are about safety. That's what, obviously, the train derailment was about. It's also about economic safety. We need a Federal Reserve that is doing its job, and that is to keep these banks safe. Look, no depositor, no small business, no family individual should have to say, I need to see the bank's balance sheet before I know that it's safe to put money in a bank. The whole idea is the regulators are supposed to keep those banks safe. You know, I used to talk about exploding toasters, that you shouldn't have to be an expert on toasters to buy a toaster. We ought to know that they're safe. That's what regulations are about. Same thing ought to be true about putting money in banks. It should be safe. Banking should not be a place for risk takers who want to who want to build up, you know, fast profits, Silicon Valley Bank increased their profitability by 40% in the last three years. That's not what we want from banks. We want banks that are boring and that are safe. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, thank you so much. Don't be a stranger. Come back soon. It's always good to see you. A moment ago, we showed you what Russia did today to the Ukrainian people in Zaporizhia, but the strikes extended across Ukraine and CNN is live with the impact across the country of Russia's ongoing war. Plus, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, or as Trump calls him, Rob DeSantis, appears to take on Donald Trump with some pointed criticisms. The timing is very interesting, and Trump's campaign is having something of a fit. We'll lay out the latest ahead. In our world lead now, a day of horror across the country of Ukraine. Seemingly random strikes continued on civilians from Zaporizhia to Kiev, according to Ukrainian officials, at least Nine people have been killed in those cities, dozens more injured, including Ukrainian children, hundreds evacuated. CNN's David McKenzie is in Ukraine, where Putin's terror reaches far beyond the front lines. Terror in broad daylight. A Russian missile striking an apartment block in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Far from the front line, forces, lives shattered in an instant. I was at work and my child was alone at home, Svetlana says. She lived on the sixth floor with her son. He knows how to walk in the hallway during an air raid, she says. It may have saved his life. This is what just happened to my home, says this man. Look, this is where I was sitting with my mom just now. But even in the aftermath, fear is never far away in Ukraine. Ukrainian officials say Russian forces fired at least six missiles at the city on Wednesday. Search and rescue teams scrambled to find people trapped under the rubble, young children among the injured. President Zelensky called it savagery from a terrorist state. And overnight, a swarm of Shahed drones sent sirens blaring across Kyiv. Air defenses brought some down. But at least seven were killed near the capital, say authorities. Russia has repeatedly denied it's targeting civilians. And in Moscow, Vladimir Putin, more concerned about the highly symbolic and choreographed visit of Chinese President Xi Jinping, who departed on Wednesday, talks a very public show of affection between the two leaders. Xi called Putin his dear friend. In a split-screen moment, President Zelensky chose instead to go close to the front lines in the east to visit injured soldiers and rally his troops. 
It is your historical mission to protect our land and return everything belonging to Ukraine for our children, he told them. We've been here on the southern front line uh, for the last two days, uh, each day, and you see those incoming rockets and artillery, well, you hear them all the time, Jake. Now, of course, the Russians say they aren't targeting civilians, saying they're going after military targets. But just here in the south, in the last 24 hours, you've had multiple strikes on residential areas, and this is the theme of this conflict. Are they going after military? Well, they certainly sowing terror in Ukraine. Jake? All right, CNN's David McKenzie in Odessa, Ukraine for us. Thank you so much, David. Will Fox and its executives and perhaps even hosts find themselves on trial before a jury? How that decision is now in the hands of a judge right now. What's on the line? Stay with us. In our politics lead, lawyers for Dominion Voting Systems and the right-wing Fox channel have wrapped up a second straight day in front of a judge who now must decide whether Dominion's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit will go ahead to trial. Dominion claims that Fox personalities and executives, quote, recklessly disregarded the truth, unquote, by knowingly promoting false claims about the company's voting machines, rigging the 2020 presidential election, which, of course, did not happen. CNN's Jessica Schneider reports for us now. A Delaware judge now weighing whether the $1.6 billion defamation case against Fox News should go to a jury trial. It's my distinct honor to introduce the Commander-in-Chief and the President of the United States, my friend Donald J. Trump. And if Fox Corporation Chairman Rupert Murdoch should be called to testify. Delaware Superior Court Judge Eric Davis told lawyers Wednesday he holds a special role at Fox Corporation that he may be able to be compelled to be here. Lawyers for Dominion Voting Systems have already asked the court to let them call Rupert Murdoch and his CEO son Lachlan if the case goes to trial next month. Fox is resisting the effort, saying the Murdochs have limited knowledge of how Fox News made editorial decisions and would be burdened by having to appear in person. The judge said it is possible they could appear over video conferencing if called. Both have already given depositions in the case, with Rupert Murdoch acknowledging some Fox News hosts endorsed election conspiracy theories and then saying, I would have liked us to be stronger in denouncing it in hindsight. In the days after the 2020 election, Fox News repeatedly featured guests like Sidney Powell. It is one huge, huge criminal conspiracy. She and others accused Dominion of using its machines and software to rig the 2020 election. Fox News says it can't be liable for airing inherently newsworthy allegations from public figures like Powell and Trump's former attorney Rudy Giuliani. Judge Eric Davis questioned a Fox lawyer, asking if top executives had the power to block the network's hosts from booking pro-Trump attorneys that they knew would promote false claims about Dominion. Fox's lawyer said that even if the Murdochs or other executives were aware of the bookings, they can't be held liable because they weren't directly involved in the decision-making to put the guests on shows. It's not enough to show that these executives have the ability to step in, Fox lawyer Aaron Murphy argued. She also said the Murdochs and other top executives don't control what goes on the air. But Rupert Murdoch, in his deposition, acknowledged that he could have stopped Trump's legal team, which peddled election lies, from appearing on the network's air, but didn't. 
And that could be a key line of questioning if this case does go to trial. How much power and responsibility did people like Rupert Murdoch have to stop these guests from going on air and promoting these false election fraud claims? So at this point, it is now in the judge's hands to decide if this case goes to trial or if there are enough facts at this point that are so clear cut that he could automatically rule for either side, Dominion or Fox News, without going to trial. And Jake, of course, there's always the question whether they settle before any trial would begin. Jake. Jessica Snyder, thanks so much. Let's discuss with my panel. Um, I'm not so sure, but I'm pretty sure Rupert Murdoch is pretty hands-on and powerful. I mean, I'm not an expert on this guy. My but jaw kind of dropped when I heard that that, was an, that could be an actual question that would be serious. I don't think it would be serious if they asked it. Of course he has the power to do that. The question is, would he have? Clearly he didn't. He said in hindsight they wish that they had, but I don't believe them. I mean, come on. This is their bread and butter. Well, we'll see what happens. But let's <laughs> let's talk about the Republican presidential race because that is heating up. <laughs> right. um, so uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis did an interview uh, with Piers Morgan, uh, and he said a lot of things. Uh, here is one of the little uh, segments that has been released. It's when Piers is, is uh, asking him about the various nicknames that Donald Trump has come up with with uh, for uh, the Florida governor. Uh, is your favorite nickname that Trump's given you so far? Is it Ron, Ron de Sanctimonious or Meatball Ron? <laughs> well, I can't... I think uh, even he went off Meatball Ron. I, but. I can't... Uh, I don't know how to spell de Sanctimonious. I don't really know what it means, but I, you know, I kind of like it's long. It's got a lot of vowels. I mean, so we go with that. That's fine. You know, you can, call me, you can call me whatever you want. I mean, just as long as you, you know, also call me a winner. I thought that the attacks, uh, so-called attacks, were, were fairly restrained. But when you read the interview, what did you think? I thought it was exquisite. No notes. I, seriously. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm serious. I, I think... He didn't it, directly go at Trump at all, really. Well, but he didn't completely dodge it either. And right. I think what this moment is calling for in the Republican primary, if you are not Donald Trump, is Republican voters who kind of like Donald Trump, and that's almost all Republican voters, they don't want a food fight. So going directly at him with a big punch, I mean, I've sat on this panel next to Paul Begala and he says, it's like prison, you got to be the one to punch someone first. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with him, but I do think that the iron fist in a velvet glove is more of what's called for here. I don't think you can be weak. I don't think you can, and I certainly don't think you can say, oh, well, I'm, I'm hurt. I wish Donald Trump wasn't insulting me. That is a 0% success move. I think what, how DeSantis is handling this is optimal. So the three implicit criticisms uh, that DeSantis made, not directly and, and full of invective, but one was about Trump's chaotic management style. He right. just said he would, he was asked how he would be different, and he said, like, his, he has no drama in his administration. Two, Trump's handling of COVID, and that was really just an attack on Anthony Fauci. Right. Uh, and three, an implicit criticism of Donald Trump's character. Right. DeSantis right. said, you, you really want to look to, you want people to look to you like our founding fathers. What, what, what did you make of it all? Well, it's basically what Kristen said, that you can't anger the people who genuinely like Trump. But there are a faction of, of Republican primary voters who are looking to move on, who like Trump's policies, who are happy with some of the actions that he took in office, maybe not, you know, spurring on an insurrection, but looking to see how someone can take that mantle and move on. And I think that's why Ron DeSantis particularly has gotten a lot of attention. I think when he went to Iowa earlier this month, he was he got a very warm reception. People were really glad to hear from him where he's and it wasn't in the normal like small living room like glad handling style because that doesn't seem to be DeSantis style but he was still very much welcome nonetheless so I like 
it, it's really interesting to see how he's making these distinctions without without really kind of he, he's kind of poking at the side without stabbing at them in the front. Yeah, there was also, yeah. of course, the, the, the press conference when he said he, he went after the prosecutor in New York, right. uh, went after, you know, uh, the Soros appointed prosecutor wasn't going to help him, blah, blah, blah. But like, I don't know anything about paying hush money to a stuff <laughs> porn star. I don't know anything about that. Now, if DeSantis's attack, if it's like one to ten, I would give, make it like a one or a two. It was mm-hmm. pretty. But the reaction from Trump world was like a 11. Right. Um, Jason Miller, who is, I guess, works for MAGA world. Ron DeSantis has finally shown his true colors, an establishment never Trumper who despises the MAGA base and was faking it the entire time. I, I saw that before I read the article. And I, I mean, there was a big disconnect. <laughs> Donald Trump Jr., never one for hyperbole. He says in part, quote, DeSantis pathetically runs to the liberal media on orders from his rhino establishment owners to attack my father. Now, I mean, Donald Trump has done interviews with Piers Morgan over and over and over. So whatever. Um, so how much of that is was baked in? Like they were just going to do that no matter what DeSantis said. They were waiting for the opening yeah. to attack him over this. I do think that the minute that they saw the Florida governor go after Donald Trump, Trump was ready to pounce. And that's what we saw after his comments on Monday. I will say, though, that I spoke with someone in a close ally of DeSantis's the other night, and he was telling me that. This is the toughest period that he has right now between running for like throwing his hat, you know, his hat in the race and making it official and trying to play as the outsider right now. He wants he's wanting to come in and attack Trump more aggressively. He doesn't want to just sit back and let Donald Trump attack him. But he's also waiting to get in the race to do that. Now, I think Trump world, on the other hand, was really expecting him to embrace this. They also I talk with a lot of advisors about it after DeSantis's remarks. And they told me that they think this was not the type of attack to issue, that a lot of people really care about what's happening with this potential indictment, that they think it's a political abuse of power and attack on Donald Trump and that the base cares about. It. And so they thought that it was seeing the DeSantis, exactly. Right. And also him saying, I have more important issues to deal with in Florida. They thought that was a real line that he stumbled on, that they think that this is something that the base cares about. Why are you not going there? And we saw people like Matt Gates, Lindsey Graham, mm-hmm. come out and say this was not mm-hmm. the right line of attack for the governor. Because of the timing also. Yes. But also, like, I have more, I have real issues to deal with, not Exactly. What he said, stuff. but also the timing of it. They thought that he okay. should be rallying around Trump in this moment, not sneaking in little jabs. And here's the problem, not just with DeSantis, but I think everyone who wants to move past Trump, no one knows how. No one knows how because they've tried everything that you said. Let's remember Jeb Bush didn't go at him immediately, right? Didn't go at him directly. Tried to sort of do the witty, you know, let's go around this. I'm going to try to ignore him. Didn't work. Marco Rubio tried the direct approach. Didn't work. He did it late, though. He did it. He, that's true. He what? did it late. But none, nothing has worked well, thus and far. The problem in 2016 was a lot of those attacks were saying, Donald Trump's not conservative enough. I'm Ted Cruz, and I'm the true conservative. I'm mm-hmm. Jeb Bush, and I govern Florida in a conservative way. And it mm-hmm. didn't really hit. And what's going to be interesting this time is to see, can Ron DeSantis credibly make the case that I am the better warrior against mm-hmm. the left than you are, that you... Mr. Former President, like to put up the fight, but I'm putting points on the board here in Florida. That's but, the argument. But if you look at polls, and granted, he's not in yet, right? So uh, there's still a lot to be seen. But Ron DeSantis has actually lost like 12 points since in, December. In the Monmouth poll. In, in the yeah. average right. of, of, of every poll who has done head-to-heads. And Donald Trump has gone up 15 That's points. That's true. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what happens. I think this whole indictment issue 
is going to be something that Donald Trump is going to take to the bank. And it's worked for him thus far. Who knows how long that will last? So DeSantis was criticized by a lot of uh, would-be allies in Washington uh, when he seemed to belittle uh, what Russia is doing in Ukraine, calling it a territorial dispute, saying that America doesn't have vital interests there. It looks like in this poll, in this uh, interview with uh, with Piers, um, that he, he might be trying to clean it up a little bit. Uh, in a new article for the New York Post, uh, Piers Morgan claims DeSantis in their interview called Putin a war criminal, demanded he be held accountable for the invasion. Um, so what changed? Well, certainly the reaction and not just from people who are, you know, you're talk- these are would be allies or people who would be eager to have him run for president against the against former President Donald Trump, who are really worried about the implications of what he said. I'm not sure. I mean, but the thing to remember is, if he does have to, if he feels like he has to clean up his comments, remember these were written statements to, I believe, Tucker Carlson. These right. were clearly thought out. This wasn't an right. interview where he just kind of talked right. off the cuff and didn't realize the implications of what he was saying. So he clearly knew that phrasing it in the way that he did um, is was a way, to, in part, to deal with the increasingly isolationist base that the Republican uh, Republican Party has. Yeah. Interesting. Thanks, one and all. Appreciate it. It is a law dating back to 1849, why it took center stage in a fierce debate happening right now, and how this fight could shape the future of U.S. politics in a key battleground state. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the past, present, and future collided during a political debate in Wisconsin, where two candidates for the Supreme Court there clashed over an abortion ban passed back in 1849. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is in Wisconsin following what's turned into the nation's most expensive judicial contest on record. Voting is underway again in Battleground, Wisconsin, where echoes of the last presidential race still resonate, even as an April election nears. This time, the campaign is all about the court, the state Supreme Court, that came within one vote of overturning Donald Trump's narrow laws to Joe Biden here three years ago. He is a true threat to our democracy. Once again, you're lying. Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protasewicz, the liberal candidate, sparred on a debate stage here this week with former Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly, a conservative who lost his seat in 2020 and is fighting to return to the state's highest court. It's become the nation's most expensive judicial race on record. The false elector scheme. In Wisconsin, extremist Dan Kelly was the right-wing lawyer behind the scenes of it all. With $30 million in counting on ads alone. Rhoda Saywitz set violent criminals free, again and again. In a bitter contest over abortion rights, redistricting, and even rules for voting in the next presidential election. The results of the 2024 presidential election are likely to come in front of the Supreme Court as well. The 10 electoral votes that we have here are very, very highly sought after. Should the 2024 presidential election be a part of this race? Nope. I have no idea what uh, uh, what this might do for the 2024 presidential elections, nor is it relevant to this race. With a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature, the conservative-leaning Supreme Court often has had the last word. From outlawing ballot drop boxes to potentially taking up a challenge to an 1849 law banning nearly all abortions after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. If my opponent is elected, that 1849 abortion ban will stay on the books. This seems to be a pattern for you, Janet. Just telling lies about me. 
Three major Wisconsin anti-abortion groups have endorsed Kelly, who said he makes no promises how he'd rule on that or any issue. Our endorsement is based on his judicial philosophy. Gracie Skogman of Wisconsin Right to Life said her movement is working hard to elect Kelly. There is more at stake in this election than ever before in our state. Wisconsin is one of 14 states that directly elects Supreme Court justices at the ballot box in elections that are technically nonpartisan, but practically anything but. This election is the most important election in the country in the year 2023 because Wisconsin is the tipping point state for presidential elections. Ben Wickler leads the Wisconsin Democratic Party, which has invested millions into the race for protosewitz. Whoever's elected April 4th will serve in 2024's presidential race, 2028, 2032. And that is the significance of this seat shake. This is a 10-year term to the Supreme Court. Whichever side wins will hold a 4-3 to three majority on this uh, state Supreme Court. So look for abortion legislation and litigation to come their way. Wisconsin has been the epicenter of so many political battles over the last couple decades. This certainly is a big race as well on April 4th. But early voting is underway now. All right, Jeff Zeleny in Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you so much. Turning to our money lead for the ninth consecutive time, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates earlier today. I want to bring in my colleague who is in a place I like to call the Situation Room, Wolf Blitzer. Uh, Wolf, this rate hike, it's a big deal. Uh, You're coming up right after the lead. Who do you have on your show to discuss it? We're going to discuss it with Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, who has very, very strong views on all of this. I've interviewed him several times, uh, and he really believes in this notion that you have to increase these interest rates to deal with inflation. Because if you don't deal with inflation now, if you start pausing these interest rates, uh, it's going to get a whole lot worse. It's going to wind up being much more costly to the U.S. economy, to the American people. So he's very forceful on this, very strong on this. We'll hear what he has to say, reacting to the decision by Jerome. Powell and the Fed earlier today. I'll also get his reaction to what we just heard on your show, Jake, the interview with Elizabeth Warren, uh, uh, who's very critical of Jerome Powell. I'll get his reaction to what we just heard from her. Yeah, they're from very different wings of the Democratic Party, Summers and Warren. But Wolf, before you go, I hope that Larry Summers is going to wish you a happy birthday. (laughs) Let's see. We'll find out soon enough. Uh, it, it has been a very happy birthday, a very special day, and I'm enjoying every minute. Is there going to be like a special dinner when you get home? There'll be a nice dinner with some friends uh, and family after the show. All right. Well, happy birthday. It is an honor, an honor to lead people into your show every day. <laughs> Thank you. Wolf Blitzer, see you in a few minutes. And- the long-awaited push to streamline the wait list for Americans who are desperate for an organ transplant. We're going to break down the critical details next. In our health lead, thousands of patients in dire need for a life-saving organ transplant could soon see their wait times shortened. A division of the Department of Health and Human Services today announced a new plan, one designed to modernize the anachronistic organ transplant system and break up the lone nonprofit that runs it. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Elizabeth, why is this overhaul happening? Jake, this is happening because there are real problems with the U.S. transplant system. These numbers really tell the story. Right now, 100,000 people are waiting for an organ transplant. About 6,000 people die each year waiting for transplants. And because of testing errors, there were 70 deaths between 2010 and 2020, and about 250 infected organs uh, were transplanted. Now, as you can imagine, as you said, there's been sort of this monopoly, monopoly 
Monopoly, the United Network for Organ Share, known as UNOS, they've been running the show for more than 30 years. They've had the sole contract with the federal government. So what the Biden administration is saying is, look, we're going to seek out other groups to have that contract, and they're hoping that that can improve things. Let's take a look at what a Senate Finance Committee said last year about what needed to be improved. They said from the top down, the U.S. transplant network is not working, putting Americans' lives at risk. The UNOS information technology system is outdated, mismanaged, and insecure. They then went on to call it decrepit and said that there was no apparent solution in sight. So we reached out to UNOS, and here's the comment that they had to say about what the Biden administration is proposing. UNOS supports HRSA, that's the government agency, HRSA's plan to introduce additional reforms into the nation's organ donation and transplant system. We also stand united with HRSA in our shared goal to get as many donor organs as possible to the patients in need while increasing accountability, transparency, and oversight. Jake? What changes can Americans right now awaiting organ transplants, what can they expect? Well, hopefully they can expect a system that runs better if someone um, other than or in addition to UNOS also joins in and running the show. And there are a couple of other specifics that the Biden administration pointed out today. They said that they want to have a better online dashboard for patients. In other words, when they're going in and sort of considering what's about to happen, they need to have the data at their fingertips and there needs to be more data transparency. And also that IT system, as you can imagine, matching up organs with patients, it's a lot of technology, needs to get better. Jake? Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. We actually read them. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts, all two hours, just sitting right there like a delicious corned beef special from Murray's. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer, right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. Don't forget to wish him a happy birthday. 